Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're talking about Fantasia from 1940, the same year as Pinocchio. It made the Vatican movie list under the art category. Apparently it grew out of a series of uh, comedic musical animations from Disney called Silly Symphonies. And somehow Disney, I suppose, himself, Walt Disney got the idea that that they could elevate this this art form to something more adult. And, that, and the film, you know, you might have the idea because you have Mickey Mouse on the cover that it's a kid's movie. I don't think it really is. It's, it seems to be just for the general public. And uh, apparently since it first opened, the parents have complained about the last segment, Night on Bald Mountain. You know, there's a lot of demonic imagery, and so that could be scary. And in fact, I just watched it with my uh, nephews, and it was interesting to see their reaction and how they how they took it in. And we, But we omitted the last part because they're pretty, they could barely handle the dinosaurs, you know. <laughs> it's ambitious, absolutely speaking. I mean, it deals with big themes, nature, myth, origins of the universe, origins of life, according to modern science. And then there's even a Christian theme in the last segment, the scary one, which is surprising, but it, but it's also notably Marian. It ends with the Ave Maria. And apparently, originally, that segment was supposed to be more explicitly Marian. So that procession with the candles was supposed to go into a cathedral with the image of the Blessed Mother as a kind of counterpoint to that devil figure. But they decided against it, probably for many reasons. But America, especially at this time, is was much more Protestant and much more suspicious of Catholic things. And so that probably would not have gone over well. The movie didn't do terribly well, popularly speaking, and that's why they never made another. Originally, it was supposed to be you know, kind of an ongoing series, a kind of um, popularization of symphonic concerts, because a lot of times symphonies are boring to, you know, the general public, partly because there's no story. There's no, there's no character to latch onto. There's no image to accompany the sound. And so you have to concentrate and get into the habit of, you know, appreciating the complexity of the music itself without any kind of external help. But this, was, this could have been a way to make classical music, broadly speaking, more popular. Uh, but it didn't apparently work out that way. So, any first impressions? Well, um, I guess I'll just take the, the thing you just mentioned about the music and kind of run with that a little bit, which is just to say that I was really struck by just how big of a music endeavor it is. I mean, I, I was vaguely aware of Fantasia, um, the uh, just the general uh, scope of it before watching it. This is this was indeed my first time watching it in full, um, so I was aware of the 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 music as a general part of the the work, but I I didn't realize just how central it is. And I guess I was struck by how yeah the the one of the huge intents of the whole 
film seems to be to just wanting to put you in a concert hall. I mean, literally, I mean, just the way that it starts off with you in the audience, in a concert hall, seeing this whole professional orchestra world. It really felt as if that was one of the big, the big uh, intents of the the director to just say, okay, um, for the masses who may not be used to concert halls, let's see what let, let me show you what it's like to sit in one and to listen to a professional orchestra, and let's give you some uh, some visuals to kind of help you in this experience. Now that said, and this is where I become a little bit of a uh, little bit of a snob, but I mean really objectively speaking i i feel like do the do the visuals really help anybody um appreciate the music at least in my experience no i felt like all those pieces went down a little bit in my experience now that i have fantasia's visuals to uh, associate them with i feel like i've <laughs> lost my ability to appreciate beethoven's pastoral symphony just as much as i'm I mean, quite as much as i used to now that i have these little centaurs and centaurettes to think about um, so I'm, I, f- I feel a little bit resentful <laughs> at Disney for that. Yeah, the, as far as what they were trying to do, I think, yeah, they were trying to give people um, an a, appreciation of classical music. I will say I think it was more an elevation of animation mm-hmm. than it was a popularization of the music. Sure. Because the music is chopped up, and it's apparently you know a lot of uh, music critics didn't like the way that was done. But the animation, I mean, from Disney's point of view, I think was the real focus. Sure. Uh, and so it was really, it, you know, if anything is dominant here, I think it's the, the visual. My first two comments are that, do either of you remember Father James Sullivan, our novice master, when we all entered together, he mentioned Fantasia and the Marian procession in our opening retreat. Oh my gosh. I really? That. I don't remember that. Because you mentioned us, I was wondering if you're ripping him off, or. <laughs> well, maybe I am subconsciously. But I remember that. What did um, he say about it? Similar to if you, your memory's it, so good. It, it's a movement from evil to, to light okay. candles, Mary. No, Father Luke, I'm jealous of you, and I've been jealous of you for a long time, <laughs> and I want to say why. I'm jealous of you because I've seen you listen to, symphonies, and you actually have enough not only music theory but a good ear where you can kind of see where the music's going how it changes almost like a football play or a basketball play and that escapes me because when i i'm i'm fairly musical but when i listen to a symphony it's just all about feelings and impressions i'm just not intelligent and so my crutch for a long time was fantasia when i was a kid it did have that effect of getting me interested in classical music because you also have these animations. And to even double down on that, the first symphony I ever went to in Pittsburgh with my dad, he got tickets from his business, worked for Ford Motor, among different dealerships. We actually sat for my first symphony ever with some other friends and neighborhood kids. We sat right front row on the right next to the, the bass section. And they played Mazursky's Night on Bald Mountain, which is bass heavy. So it was just kind of bizarre. It's like my interest in classical music was helped by Fantasia, first live orchestra, a la Fantasia. But it is true. Is like I think it creates this false expectation for me. It's like I've sat through many symphonies in real life and kind of felt like I have to imagine some sort of images or what does the you know does, is this springtime. 
I'm in high school trying to be more profound than I actually was, and I'm thinking of like girls at a symphony, you know, whatever it is. But it's like, so this is a confession of my inability to enjoy classical music to a, to the level of a musician. But I also think Fantasia, even though it helped me get involved in classical music, it sort of set false expectations of like music should produce images, almost like mm-hmm. synesthesia. It's fine to do that, I think. But I also don't think... Um, so I actually ask questions of what should the rest of us be doing if we don't have visuals and we're listening to Beethoven? That's my question. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it's it really touches on a big question in classical music because, um, so, you know, as as you both know, I mean, when classical music begins, it's very much attached to a function, right? So we see the beginnings of classical music in the church, you know, um, where it has the function of giving um, a melody to the prayers of the church, right, um, in the liturgy. Um, and then you also have music, classical music beginning as the accompaniment for dances, right? So it has a very clear function of giving a kind of rhythm to be danced to. And so it's clear that you have, you know, music playing a certain role. But then as classical music develops, it becomes more and more divorced from, I mean, it continues to have those various functions, but it also begins to take on another scope where it's just sort of music on its own. And of course, the, um, the music critic who kind of leads the way through Fantasia, he touches on this at the very beginning, right? When he's introducing Bach's uh, Toccata and Fugue, right? So he's he's saying, okay, this P- Toccata and Fugue by Bach is pure music. It's just music as music to be listened to as sound and make of it what you will. But um, then as music continues to develop, you begin to see how it gets more and more complex. And after a while, in sort of like the late 19th century, early 20th century, music is getting so complex that you begin to have people saying, okay, in order to keep audience members engaged, we have to have some way of rooting these very complex harmonic and melodic sounds in some kind of, some kind of frame, like a storyline or a visual. And so there was a lot of return to this, this sense of, okay, we have to give classical music um, an actual program. So, you know, like, like the night on Bald Mountain, you know, that, that would be called program music, where you're, you literally have a, a program of stuff that's happening um, as you follow the music. But then, you know, this is pushed back against by, by other people who are like, no, that's, that, that's doing violence to music for music's sake. Um, I don't think there's really any um, resolution to that that question. I think it's there's no one way to fall on that. It's it's just it really depends on how someone ch- wants to listen to music. So if someone wants to listen to a symphony that was created as just music for music's sake, so to speak, and think of lots of imagery, that's that's great. And many many very good you know professional quote unquote listeners would 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 do that. But um, it's also not a necessary way to listen to music, and there's great joy to be to be found in, in being able to listen to music as as the pure form that it is, and thinking of it on its own on its purely on its own terms. So uh, I would say to you, Father Timothy, you know, if if you want to think of of people and colors and images as you listen to Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, um, more more power to you. Yeah, I've I've always needed some sort of crutch. Like I remember um, a friend of mine from childhood. He went in. He was part of a fraternity in college, and he kind of responsibly 
checked himself into rehab between junior and senior year. So coming to campus for his final year, it's sort of like, what do you do on Friday, Saturday nights if you're going to try and stay sober? And so I remember we committed, this is like the most ambitious, I mean, I've liked classical music, I have for many years, but it's kind of here and there. I had another friend who was like a lifeguard, and we would, in summer, he doesn't know music theory at all, but he would still like sit in his parents' living room and listen. I would join him a little bit in that. He was like listening, trying to show me Brahms, and I was like, you know, you're in like red swimming trunks after the shift, and you're just like, yeah, it's cool. Like I liked it, but... (laughs) I wasn't. I didn't have competence. My most consistent commitment was that friend out of rehab, senior fall, and we would actually commit every Friday night to listen to each of Beethoven's nine symphonies, so nine Fridays in a row. It, it's just funny to look at my limits. Um, and I, I could sing harmonies and play instruments. Like I know music somewhat well enough, but the whole movement of a symphony, I start to lose the threads. And like I would, we would drink tea on his couch in his apartment. And also smoke pipes. Pipe smoke, actually, unlike cigar smoke, it doesn't really stick as much to the to the rooms. You can come out the next day and you don't notice. But I remember, like, even there, I had to be doing something, tea and pipe tobacco. Or I even remember Beethoven's Seventh, the odd number symphonies, one, three, five, seven, nine, I liked better than the evens. And the, dr- the dramatic moments I captured, like, I didn't the most aesthetic of moments like the second movement of the seventh symphony was not lost on me i was like oh my gosh this is like above the rest but then like when i saw that utilized in the king's speech you know when george the sixth winner of best picture gets that like that to me do i prefer to take this this moment of amazing music and put it into a movie with the king's speech like that to me i was like yes Whereas like when I when I saw it in original context, oh, I'm finally locked in on like a hike up a mountain to a really good view, but I didn't enjoy the rest of the hike. I really enjoyed this one moment. So I I, I don't know why this is a public confession, am I struggling to listen to classical music? But it's weird, it's like in my weakness I prefer taking certain spots, applying it to other art instead of just the difficult task of a whole symphony, whatever. That makes sense. Um, I think a lot of people would agree with you. And uh, the way to think of classical music is just that, yeah, to learn to listen to it according to its form and to be able to sort of understand what a composer is thinking about on the level of form with something like a symphony, it's sort of it's just an investment, you know, sort of like um, learning to read a challenging author, you know, like uh, I know you're a you're a fan of T.S. Eliot, you know, and like in order to learn to get what he's trying to do it's you have to kind of invest in in the work of getting familiar with poetry with literature on on a bigger scale and and so yeah music's kind of like that everyone has to start on the level of just pure appreciation which is something that you know you you've you've already gotten to can we talk a little bit about disney sure um i want to go back to what i what i mentioned about how i felt like my experience of Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony was was hurt by the uh, images that Disney gave me, and um, and again, I know that 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 is a very it's a very snobby thing to say, but I think it's important to think about what's just just what Disney's impact on our culture is. And watching Fantasia was an opportunity for me to think about. It was an opportunity for me to think about about it because Fantasia is very early in 
the production of Disney, right? It's sort of early in their history. And so it's an opportunity to think about, okay, yeah, what what has Disney been from the beginning? And has its contributions for all of us been for the better or for the worse? For most of us as Americans, I think Disney is just such a fundamental part of the fabric of our of our visual culture that we just kind of take it for granted and we can easily see something like Fantasia or Snow White or some of the other early Disney things and just think, oh, how quaint. Because it's quaint and almost 100 years old, it can seem good in a way. But I guess what I'm going to try to argue briefly here is just that it's actually not good. <laughs> it's oh actually it's actually bad. Word. Um, and we can... Thank you for that. And we can um, access the badness of it just by looking at what some good authors that are beloved to me um, had to say about Disney when Disney first began to come out with things like Snow White. Um, have you guys both both heard what Tolkien and Lewis had to say about the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves as presented by Disney? I've not. Um, here's what no. Tolkien had to say. He called it vulgar. <laughs> he called Disney's depiction of dwarves hopelessly corrupted. <laughs> He's in describing multiple Disney pictures. He said, "Quote unquote." Though in most of the pictures proceeding from his studios, as in Disney Studios, there are admirable or charming passages. The effect of all of them is to me disgusting. Some of them have <laughs> given me nausea. <laughs> He's, someone sent him some images of um, of a picture version of his Hobbit story. And he said he didn't like it. Why? Because he described it as too Disneyfied for my taste. Um, Gandalf was presented as a figure of vulgar fun rather than the Odinic wanderer that I think of. C.S. Lewis, describing the dwarves in Snow White, said, Okay, dwarves, quote unquote, ought to be ugly, of course, but not in that way. The dwarves jazz party was pretty bad. I suppose it never occurred to the poor boob that you could give them any other kind of music. But all the terrifying bits were good. The animals were mostly moving. Um, the use of shadow was real genius. And then he asks the question, C.S. Lewis says, but it makes you wonder what might have come of it if this man, as in Walt Disney, had been educated or brought up in a decent society. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and what he means by that, I think, is just like, okay, there's something here. He gets the good of certain cultural contributions like fairy tales, like myth, like classical music, whatever. But, like, what is he actually, how has he approached them and how has he then presented them to the public? And what I would argue, and you see this absolutely in Fantasia, is that, yeah, he. He has just enough education to sense the goodness of certain cultural achievements, but not enough real education to be able to present them in a way that that doesn't simply give them to the audience, to the mass public as something that's tame and safe and cheap and cute, really kind of airbrushed mm. of the reality that good art has. This was, I was really feeling about this strongly. Just want, and I keep on coming back to the Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony because what do you have here? You have one of the great works of Beethoven, of one of the greatest composers. You have the all of these 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 old Greek imagery things going on. He's drawing on sort of the best of Western civilization, right? In in our visu our visual vocabulary, and what is he presented as? I just I just couldn't believe how how ugly it all was and how just pathetically cute and cheap he made it. And so mm. 
Um, and again, I know I, I know I'm a snob. I'm, I'm happy to you know to get a card printed that says I'm a card carrying snob. But um, how, what has Disney's impact on us as a culture been? I think it's really really been for the worse. Now, Father Allen, Father Allen, you have an appetite for controversy. This is how you're wired. Why don't you jump in? Well, uh, this reminds me of another famous Disney quote. This comes from Theodore Adorno. He said that Disney is the most dangerous American. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, Adorno was himself ideologically suspect. But, yeah, I mean, I think a lot, it's, this is a common criticism of Disney, that it's kitschy, cotton candy, candied European cultural treasures. You know, so like Pinocchio, we, we were talking about earlier. I'm sure Snow White has some kind of history behind it, too. But even the famous Disney castle, whose silhouette yeah. is part of the, the logo, you know, that's some kind of European castle. It's Neuschwanstein. But at Disneyland. Yeah, Neuschwanstein. I've been there. Okay, it's, okay. It's not even... <laughs> What's that, in Austria? It's in uh, southwestern Germany, Munich. Not Munich, it's in Bavaria. Okay. But, you know, you go to Disneyland, and it's this blue, silver thing, whatever. And then, you know, Disney princesses. So it, it's drawing on royalty and whatnot. It seems like Disney has some kind of goal like this to kind of give people a euphoric escape. It's, yeah, it's a little bit to teach people things, but it's mostly to, like, I mean, look at the title. So Fantasia is apparently Latin for something like imagination or fantasy. There were all of these attempts around Fantasia, like, to do with the sound. So apparently they, they introduced some some new sound technique or technology to kind of envelop people in the sound, you know, which was a precursor to surround sound. And there were even talks about uh, using different kinds of scents and incense during the showings. So, like, for example, this is just from the Wikipedia page, which is particularly interesting, that, uh, you know, during the Ave Maria, there would be church incense kind of Mm -hmm. piped into the theater. I mean, I think he really had this idea that you could kind of envelop people, that you could engage people at every sensory level and and help people to forget or something. Um, I think that was, you know, is the thing moving? Is it uh, kind of entrancing? But it was at a mass level. Had it been more uh, cultured, educated, could Disney have been as big of a hit in America? I don't know. I mean... So we can you can come back to that, but I have two other questions. One is, why did Fantasia stop? So it was originally supposed to be a recurring thing. But then a bigger question is, why did classical music broadly understood, why did that stop? I mean, we, still, we can still go to the symphony and hear things, but kind of the golden age has passed. You know, I don't know who you would consider like the, the last canonical composer... And was the um, torch? Pa- I mean, I'm thinking of this, but was the torch passed around the time of Fantasia, where the era of classical music is basically handed on to film, essentially? I mean, your main composers are one of two things today: they're either movie composers or video game composers. I actually was speaking to a director of a symphony in Philadelphia, and he said most composers are getting hired money-wise for video games. <laughs> disappointing but but true i mean um well so hold on so why did fantasia stop well because it wasn't that great 
Okay. All right. Why did, why did, why did classical music stop? Um, but why yeah. did classical music stop? Um, well, I mean, I guess I would say on the one hand, it didn't. On the other hand, I grant your point and we can think about why. I mean, so it, I mean, it, my first answer is, it, well, it didn't stop and it has continued and people continue to perform. People continue to go to performances and composers do continue to write um, and things continue to be um, written that I think are, are, are worthy of much merit. So it continues and it will continue. Um, but why did it stop in some respect? Um, in some respect, I think it can be said to that it stopped just because um, in the sense that as it, as it continued to evolve, um, and this touches on what we were discussing at the very beginning of this episode, is just the, um, that as classical music developed, it got more and more complex. And then, of course, you have the whole modernist movement, which just completely demolished all of the classical forms that had been developing and just began to enter into more and more inaccessible and frankly, more and more unpleasant sounds. And that's a great way to just lose your audience. <laughs> so I think, you know, in the early, early 20th century into the mid 20th century, you just had classical musician audiences or excuse me, classical music audiences just feeling like the composers of their era had just it just kind of dropped them and said that they didn't care about them and they were writing complicated music for complicated music theorists, right? And so um, we just lost a lot of those audience members who then began to only want to hear stuff of the past. However, I, th I think that, that we've kind of gone over that hump and we now have performers who and, and composers who um, are saying, okay, we've tried the whole modernist deconstruction um, thing and uh, we took that as far as we can go now w now where do we go from here and you naturally see tonality returning you see um, um, time honored genres returning and um, you see audience members returning I will say, okay. I, I will say my, my concluding statements would be twofold our next film we're going after it's the old man in the sea we're going after the big fish and that's, the, that's the tree of life of all movies the big fish but Terrence Malick uh, we could talk about would be a good jumping point he goes after a lot of this contemporary classical music you know stuff post Beethoven even post Stravinsky that we might not be familiar with he's actually a great collector of that maybe the there only person maybe the only person to present it in popular form sure. um, and a great listener of that I'm mixed on Disney um, I mean my heart is still with Robin Hood, Peter Pan, Jungle Book, Jump Ahead to Lion King, Jump Ahead to Moana. It's just so good. It's all, it's he's, all he's, good. He's irreparably damaged. It's, it's just what you feared. However, <laughs> I, I do wonder, my only point is not so much the presentation of storytelling and fairy tales. I'm coming from a culture which is not the same as Lewis or Tolkien. Um, maybe when we get to the cocktail hour above, we can have it out, and I'll be like, J.R., what did you say about Walt? And Walt will still be in purgatory, and J.R. is going to be like, well, 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 you know, let's let's have some time here to tease things out. Um, and, well, we have time here. It's the afterlife, buddy. Let's tease it out, okay? Um, but the other thing would be, like, in terms of idealism, I do wonder if the American dream, which can be too idealistic and constantly sort of romantic, I wonder if American romanticism, which doesn't always help real things like keeping a job, being moms and dads, um, I have wondered if 
our being raised on Disney movies has made us kind of fly too high instead of just be thankful. But they, the last last foil to add to, I don't understand why every Disney movie has to have like orphan characters. Like nobody has a family structure. That's a whole other issue. But I know I have one last Disney theory while I'm still on air. Okay. I do think in our lifetime, there was a Disney renaissance in the 80s and 90s. You know, we're going through Little Mermaid. We're going through Lion King. I do think Pocahontas is the end of the renaissance. And for a long time, we went through some dark ages. But I do think some films late, I already mentioned Moana, well, it's, it was worthy, worthy, worthy art. Um, but that's, <laughs> that's my take. That's my take. That is a good counterpoint to everything I said, and I'm glad that you said it. <laughs> I have been moved. I have been... Uh, I'm not I mean, confident I, to reply. Father Luke, are, are there any other gems you'd like to bestow upon us here today? Oh, gosh. I guess the only last two gems I would offer insofar as that that's a pretty generous thing to call them but um yeah is that uh, number one um if there's one thing that fan is endu- enduring about fantasia it's mickey mouse okay the one picture one image from fantasia that really 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 lives on the sorcerer's is, apprentice one is mickey mouse in that sorcerer's hat i mean that is a enduring image and this was just 11 years after Mickey Mouse first arrived via Steamboat Willie. And, um, it, yeah, he, it's, a, it's a Mickey Mouse home run. It's a, the movie's a failure, but it's a Mickey Mouse home run. So there's that. Um, Mickey Mouse, then, is, he's, he's the Mike Trout of Disney. You know? he's, <laughs> he's the best, but they're not winning. <laughs> That's perfect. That's right. Um, and then finally, as a segue to Tree of Life, I will say that um, it's fitting to go to Tree of Life now because – Fantasia and Tree of Life are, as as far as I'm aware, the only two movies that combine classical music, evolving life forms, volcanoes, and dinosaurs in a grand human cosmic drama. Mm. Okay. And I could not ask for more. That's Edwin McCain, late 90s, on B91. That, no, B93? What was the student bill? Anyway, 93.7, B94. Thank you for that. Father Allen, you're you you're the, sick for every podcast. You're the conductor. How, how are you? How are you? How are you? You know, landing uh, this place. No, I think uh, I think we'll just cut it off here. Okay. Yeah.